You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. This week we look at the infamous drug lord and gangster El Chapo Guzman. He attempted to consolidate much of Mexico's narco-trafficking under the auspices of the Sinaloa cartel. This week's guest, Noah Horowitz, is a journalist who covered the trial of El Chapo in New York City for Rolling Stone magazine. His work has also appeared in The Village Voice, The Baffler and New York magazine. He is the author of the recent book, El Chapo. In this episode, we discuss all things El Chapo and intelligence, including El Chapo's rise from a provincial low-level drug dealer to a kingpin attempting to subvert the Mexican state, including its security agencies, to his will. Technology in the drug war, including the use of cryptography, spyware and drones. The role of the DFS, a highly corrupt intelligence and security agency in the Mexican drug war. And the role that the DEA and the CIA played in the Mexican drug war, including the murder of DEA agent Kiki Camarena, an important way station in the current and ongoing war on drugs. I just wondered if we could just frame it all. Just tell us what it was like to be there at the El Chapo trial. So some of us saw it on TV. What was it like to be there? And what kind of information came out that would be of particular interest to our listeners? So intelligence agencies, spy tech, those sorts of things. So to try to describe what it was like to cover the trial, it was, it was insanity. You know, it was from, from the moment that it, it started, it was a bizarre spectacle circus. There was this, there was intense security. The trial, for those who don't know, El Chapo was on trial in Brooklyn Federal Court from November 2018 to February 2019. 
it was the culmination of many, many years of, of building a case against him, waiting for him to be captured, waiting for him to be recaptured, and then waiting for him to be extradited. So this was years in the making, and it was really really hectic. I think, you know, there were, there were snipers on the roof. There was a national guard unit down in the lobby with a Geiger counter in case anyone saw fit to, I guess, bring a dirty bomb or something. And even just to get El Chapo to the courthouse, he was being held in the deten- the federal detention facility in Manhattan, but the trial was taking place in Brooklyn. And so every time that he would have to be moved, they would have to, sh- they would shut down the Brooklyn bridge completely to all traffic and bring him across in this convoy of several police cars, a transport vehicle and an ambulance, I guess, just in case. And so they had actually, they'd rigged up sort of a, a, some kind of cell for him so that during the week he would stay in the Brooklyn courthouse overnight and then be brought back to Manhattan uh, for the weekend so that they wouldn't have to shut down the Brooklyn bridge every single morning. So you know, my my colleague uh, covering it for the New York Times, Alan Foyer, I think put it best. It felt like being on a spaceship, sort of in orbit. It was just this whole other world. And just for, you know, for three months, essentially, it felt, you know, I was living in Brooklyn. I was going to the courthouse every day, going home every night, but it felt almost like some kind of foreign posting. It was just, it was so immer- immersive. And the trial itself was incredible because there were more than 40 witnesses providing testimony. Some of those were expert witnesses. Some of them were DEA agents, FBI agents. Uh, But the most interesting, of course, were the cooperating witnesses who were former associates or lackeys or henchmen or partners of El Chapo. And that included Garcia, a.k.a. El Rey, who is the brother of Ismael uh, El Mayo Zambada, who is the partner of El Chapo, who is still at large in Mexico. It included the the son of El Mayo, uh, this guy, Vicentillo Zambada Niebla, a.k.a. Vicentillo. These were extremely high-profile drug traffickers who had been arrested some time before and then had flipped and were cooperating against El Chapo and were providing just an incredible amount of insight into the inner workings of El Chapo's drug trafficking network. Are they on witness protection now? We don't really know where they are, actually. Okay. A lot of so a lot of the um, people who provided testimony against El Chapo have since received uh, significantly reduced sentences. There's a great deal of of secrecy, and there was a great deal of secrecy throughout the trial about any number of, of you know, aspects. There, there was this constant stopping and starting of the testimony, and then the lawyers would go up and argue with, with the judge about what could and couldn't be uh, included. And sometimes that would be heavily redacted, just because there were all of these sort of state secrets. And there was also a, the judge, Judge Brian Cogan, expressed a certain willingness to protect the U.S. government and the government of Mexico from allegations that he saw as sort of a sideshow to the actual trial. This issue of avoiding embarrassment to a to a diplomatic partner came up again and again. Because obviously a story about a high-profile drug trafficker in Mexico includes a significant amount of official corruption and collusion. And that that you know that did come up a lot, but at a certain level there was a lot of secrecy and a lot of attempts to, to, I think, shield 
the higher levels of the Mexican government from allegations of, of collusion with El Chapo. Now you asked about what would be of particular interest to listeners of this podcast. I think hands down, the most astonishing part of the trial was the revelation of this young Colombian, essentially IT guy named Christian Rodriguez. Now, Christian was, I, I, as far as we can tell, that's not his real name. That's a, a pseudonym. Christian was a young Colombian sort of hacker guy. You know, he, he was a college dropout, very plugged into sort of internet hacker circles in Colombia. And he had been, he had essentially, he had started working for a Colombian family of cocaine producers called the Cifuentes Via family, doing communications for them, essentially. You know, he set up a encrypted phone system for them. And they liked it so much and that they were, they were, their main partner in Mexico was El Chapo. And one of the brothers of, of that family, this guy named Alex uh, Cifuentes, was in Mexico with El Chapo as sort of a half, half hostage, half lieutenant. If anything went wrong, the implication was they have him, but he did become sort of an active part of El Chapo's network. So Christian, in, I believe, late 2008, early 2009, flew to Sinaloa and met with El Chapo and literally flew up into the, the mountains of Sinaloa and literally like gave him like a PowerPoint presentation of how encrypted communications work. And so nobody had ever heard of Christian before. The, prior to that, there were a few instances that we knew of of El Chapo being on tape. And that was mostly thanks to these twin brothers from Chicago, the, the Flores twins, who were major wholesale drug traffickers who had worked closely with El Chapo and his network and had, in 2008, flipped and turned themselves into the DEA, because things were getting too hot in Mexico and they wanted a way out. And they had caught El Chapo and some other high-ranking drug traffickers on tape discussing drug shipments. Now, we knew about that. That had, that had come out. And until the trial, nobody knew of any other instance of El Chapo being caught on tape. And then you know, along comes Christian Rodriguez with just this absolutely wild story of essentially an outsider, you know, not a real, he didn't grow up in the drug trade. He didn't have the same level of familiarity with it. And he essentially an outsider comes into this world and sees it through almost not quite civilian eyes, but, but the next best thing. And he provided just this incredible glimpse into this world. And he also provided a tremendous amount of hard evidence against El Chapo and his and his allies. Eventually, he handed over the keys to the encrypted messaging network to the FBI, and they were able to see everything. They were able to see messages. They were able to intercept uh, phone calls, everything. And so it told us a lot about the, El Chapo's use of technology in, in his management of this global enterprise. And it also told us a lot about the effort by the FBI to to infiltrate that. And I was fortunate enough or you know, dogged enough, I guess, whichever way you want to look at it, to gain access to some high-level federal 
law enforcement agents who were familiar with that investigation when I was reporting the book. And so I was able to, over the course of three or four interviews of several hours at a time, I was able to really flesh out that story a lot more. And so even if people read along during the trial and, and heard about Cassandra Rodriguez and, and heard about the the audio and the the messages, I think that in the book, I was able to expand that story a lot. So just to be clear, uh, Christian is a Colombian who's involved in hacker culture, and then he works for Colombian narco-trafficante, and then eventually he gets introduced to El Chapo, and he introduces El Chapo to the the information age way of doing things. Exactly, exactly. Well, so, I mean, El Chapo always did have an understanding of technology and a desire to work with the most advanced technology. And that's something that goes back many years to other drug traffickers in Mexico. You know, one thing that comes up again and again with the most high profile, the most successful drug traffickers, whether it's uh, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo in, in Guadalajara in the 80s or Amado Garrido Fuentes in Juarez in the 90s, these guys had a really keen understanding of the fact that technology could be their friend. It could also be their enemy. I was recently reporting a story for uh, for Insider.com about Amado Cardio Fuentes. And one thing, you know, I was talking to a, a number of DEA agents who were who were investigating him in the 90s. And one thing that, that I heard come up again and again was they were always a little bit behind the technology. You know, they were always playing catch up. These guys really, they had the resources to invest in the latest technology. And they had a jump on the people investigating them because as long as their communications te- technology and strategy stayed secret, the FBI, the DEA, whoever would be a step behind. And it, it took a sort of a, it took a combination of human intelligence, sources, informants, that kind of thing, for law enforcement agencies to figure out what they were using and then play catch up. The way that the FBI found out about Christian Rodriguez was literally just a walk-in tip. In, in Manhattan. A guy walked into the, the federal plaza in, in Manhattan and was like, hey, I, I know about this guy. And so they had to sort of work out that tip. And then they had to start doing pretty extensive human intelligence uh, operations on the ground in Colombia just to find out who Christian was. Help us understand how all of this information was gathered. So he goes to Mexico, he uh, speaks to El Chapo, gives him the, the PowerPoint uh, brief, uh, talk about giving a PowerPoint under pressure. I wouldn't want to give one to uh, El Chapo. No. <laughs> you say that, but he, he was a pretty, all indications tell us that if you weren't on his bad side, he could be a pretty chill guy. When Christian was talking about his first trip to Sinaloa, he's talking, he's, you know, he's so nervous. He's, he's in this rickety Cessna airplane flying up into the mountains. He lands and he's greeted by this party of armed guards and they drive him up the hill on a on an ATV. And then he meets El Chapo and El Chapo's like, hey, dude, how you doing? Like, hope you had a good trip. You guys, you professionals, you can travel so much easier than guys like me. Man, I'm jealous. So and, and when you hear him on the on the intercepts later, he 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 wasn't the most imposing guy. Actually, one of the um, the agents who I spoke to for the book about this this investigation told me that one of the first recordings that they listened to, they hear this one guy who sounds really worked up and angry and yelling. 
And then they hear this other guy who's sort of trying to calm the other guy down. Hey, 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 chill, chill, chill. And they assumed that the angry guy was El Chapo and the, the other guy was his lieutenant or whatever. And then when they ran it by the translator, the translator was like, no, 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 you're wrong. That's El Chapo. El Chapo is the chill guy. El Chapo is the one who's like, hey, dude. Uh, like, So I will say, yes, I wouldn't want to go up into the mountains to give a PowerPoint presentation to El Chapo. But from everything that we learned about him, he was perhaps not the most intimidating guy to to give a, a PowerPoint to compared to perhaps other drug traffickers. <laughs> I'm just being playful. I guess I'm just, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't want to get on his bad side. <laughs> that No, that you would not. And, 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 Christ, and Christian learned that, I think, the hard way. And so uh, help us understand how all of this information gets collected then. So he gives a PowerPoint brief, but why does El Chapo allow conversations about a criminal conspiracy to be kept under the control of someone else that he doesn't control? Why does he not exert the necessary leverage or take the steps necessary? Does he does he just not understand how cyber security works or or was it a loophole or was this guy doing what archivists in the Cold War done where they would make the copies and then they would make a separate copy and exfiltrate it and keep it for themselves? Like how, how did this information get gathered and how did it get out of El Chapo's control? So Christian set up servers uh, originally in Mexico and later he moved them to Canada because he felt that they would be more secure there and that the infrastructure was better. But essentially the, I would have to, man, I would have to go back and look at the exact testimony to tell you the exact technical specifications, but essentially there was a... Just broad brush kind of thing. Yeah, it's essentially the the encrypted, the, the message would be sent from one encrypted device to another. And it would pass through a server where it would be briefly unencrypted and then sent on. And my impression is that it was it was saved on these servers, which is a massive security flaw. That's and the issue is, I think that it, essentially it was in, incredibly secure unless you could get to the guy who runs the servers, which the FBI did. I think El Chapo, I think El Chapo made a mistake. I think he, I think perhaps he trusted Christian too much. I think he he maybe saw this sort of dweebish tech guy and thought this guy's never can't betray me, you know. Uh, when in reality, I think that he was an incredibly weak link because the, if the FBI or whoever else could get to him, that guy's not going to stand up. So it's not that the FBI got to the server independently. It was through Christian and Christian handing over the uh, decryption keys that they managed to get access, right? Exactly. I mean, within six months of of getting that tip about this guy named Christian who was working for El Chapo, the FBI was able to get their hands on one of the devices that he had set up, not for El Chapo, but for the Cifuentes Villa family in, in Colombia. And they got their hands on the device and they sent it to Quantico and they couldn't do anything with it. They couldn't crack it. Like Christian, Christian set up a really sophisticated encrypted, I guess the term would be firmware encrypted device, especially for the time, because so now he really knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. Now, of course, we have a, a whole range of consumer, uh, consumer focused encrypted phones, messaging apps, what have you. Um, but at the time, it was much more 
I think much more subcultural that 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 interest in in encrypted communication. And it was harder to get your hands on these things. And Christian was able to set something up that according to the FBI, they couldn't crack. Now it's possible that they just don't want anyone to know that they <laughs> that they could <laughs> crack that. But but if if you can if you can hack those servers, what's easier? Hacking those servers or uh, managing a potentially delicate human informant, because the reason that I trust that they couldn't get in that way is that they had to go with Christian, and Christian was a handful. He they had to manage him as an informant for actively for more than two years, and then after that they had to relocate him, and they had to pay for his pay for his relocation. He's he's going through therapy. He's having a rough time. So I I do think that if they could have if they could have found a way to get in there without having to deal with Christian, they would have. But ultimately, they knew that they they weren't going to crack these phones. And so, what they did is stop me if I'm giving away too much. If I'm if I'm uh, you know I don't want to give up the suspense in the book. But they lured Christian to a hotel room in Manhattan where they had a a someone associated with the FBI. Uh, with a thick Russian accent and a big coat, real spy stuff, pretending to be some kind of shady figure who needed encrypted communications equipment. And so a go-between who had contact with Christian essentially brokered this meeting in a hotel room in Manhattan. And he showed, you know, he showed him the ropes, he showed him how it worked. And then at the end of the meeting, the Russian, the Russian gangster, quote unquote, goes, okay, I am going to, use this to traffic cocaine from Miami to New York. And Christian's like, all right, cool, nice. And just like that, he was implicated in a major conspiracy to traffic cocaine and could have faced enough time to go away for life. And so even with that, the FBI was still trying to get into those phones, just brute force, and they couldn't. So a year later, they corner him in in Bogota, in Colombia, in the airport, and they hustle him into a car with with the help of some unspecified Colombian partners, they said. And they bring him to essentially a an hourly motel, one of those really skeevy, you know, in 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 New York tabloid lingo, we call it a hot sheet motel. And one one of the one of the officials who was in the room that day told me nobody wanted to sit on the bed. <laughs> when we were when we were interrogating Christian there. Eventually they they show him the surveillance footage of him meeting with this Russian guy in Manhattan and they're like, look man, we have you. And Christian cracked. And so he he worked with them to move the servers from Canada to the Netherlands in order to because the the US had a really good working relationship with the Netherlands with a mutual legal assistant treaty and an MLAT. I, I forget what the A stands for, but there's these treaties where you can do sort of mutual law enforcement maneuverings with another country. Christian told El Chapo, you know, we, we have to move the servers. They're going to be more secure here. And El Chapo was like, okay. You know, he, he had already moved the servers once before, so he, it wasn't out of the blue. And he moved them to the Netherlands. And then the U.S. Uh, got essentially got a warrant to just go in and, and get everything. And so for, you know, there were, there were a few 
a few issues here. One was the the encrypted messaging system, and then there was also a voice over internet protocol, uh, like phone system, also encrypted. And those calls were being stored on another set of servers. And after a certain point, I think the summer of 2011, El Chapo started stopped using the stopped using the the message system. He didn't trust it anymore, but he kept talking on the phone, and he shouldn't have. <laughs> For her, all of this as well, why why did Christian flip? Why did he turn? I mean, obviously they've got him, but other people that they've tried to flip, the implication is that, I mean, sure, you can, you can wrap me out, but I'm going to take out your whole family. Other people have been dissuaded from doing it. What, I know you don't know his intentions, but why do you think that he was persuaded to do it? Was it just the fear of prison or has there no repercussions on his family or anything? I think that they got to him at a good time. Shortly before they cornered him in Bogota, he had been in the mountains of Sinaloa with El Chapo and Alex Cifuentes and all of these gunmen. And a, a few things had happened at that meeting. One, so in addition to the encrypted uh, communications that, that Christian was running for El Chapo, he was also installing spyware on BlackBerry devices that El Chapo was giving out to his lieutenants and his girlfriends and his wives. And then El Chapo was able to use this, this spyware program to see what was on their phones. He was able to see their text messages. He was able to see their locations. He was even able to remotely activate their mic and 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 listen to them and he loved that christian recalled that it was it was like a toy to him almost he became obsessed with it and he was he was calling like every day he was calling christian help me with this help me with that and it was i think i think it was a lot of work and so christian goes up to the mountains this is his last visit to the mountains and el chapo had a new request for him Essentially, he, he, he asked Christian, would it be possible to set up spyware on every single public computer in the city of Culiacan, which is the capital of Sinaloa? It's, it's sort of his home turf. He wanted Christian to basically go into all of the internet cafes in Culiacan and set up spyware so that his people could see everything that was happening. Now, to be perfectly honest, I don't know how they would have handled that amount of information. Like That, that, that seems like it would have been almost too much for them to process but he wanted to essentially have a, a citywide intelligence surveillance network in in Culiacan and so i think that was sort of a pretty crazy ask and then in the middle of this meeting mind you el chapo was a wanted fugitive at the time in the middle of this meeting they get word from a from a a, a lookout that the army is coming and so they have to hastily pack up their their little sort of encampment and run down the mountains. And so for for two nights, El Chapo and Alexi Fuentes and all of these other guys who are used to living in the mountains, used to carrying weapons, a lot of them have military training. They're running, and then poor Christian is just huffing and puffing his way through the mountains with these madmen with you know rocket launchers and, and machine guns. And he was, I think, he was pretty close to done after that. I don't think he wanted to, you know, he never saw El Chapo again after that. He never went back up into the mountains after that. I think he wasn't, I think that that was sort of a breaking point. And so the fact that the FBI approached him shortly after that, 
I think he was looking for a way out. He wasn't necessarily a lifer in this thing. He wasn't necessarily, you know, he didn't necessarily get involved as like a hitman when he was, or a lookout when he was like 13, 14. He didn't, I don't think he was necessarily raised with the same level of, of, you know, Omerta, you know, of, of, you know, never, never speaking, never telling. I think he was, he was in it for profit and he was looking to get out of it in a way that would, that would work. I think that he wasn't in, in an enviable situation. The next, for the next year or two years, he was running this double game and living in an intense amount of fear. He ended up, he ended up having to get like electroconvulsive therapy when he came to the U.S. because he was having panic attacks and and deep depression. It wasn't easy for him. I think that the FBI correctly ascertained that he was a weak link, that he was someone that they could get to. He wasn't a hardened criminal. He wasn't. He wasn't, I don't think he had any particular loyalty to anyone that he was working for. He was a, a guy who was doing it for money and because he was good at what he did. And he was, a, oh, he was kind of a wimp, you know? So I think they, they correctly saw him as someone that they, could, that they could get to. And no repercussions? Or there haven't been any yet? Or was he not afraid of that? I mean, his family was relocated with him to the United States. Okay. We don't know enough about his family in Colombia to know if everyone made it to the U.S., but we do know that his wife and his girlfriend and both of their kids were brought to the U.S. We'll be right back after this. So uh, I just want to take a step back now, Noah, and just broaden our, our horizon a bit and then we'll come back in and look at El Chapo and his organization and its inner workings and its link to the Mexican state. But you sketch it out quite well in the book. I, I just want to quickly summarize the kind of geography. So correct me at any point if I get it wrong. So Mexico, uh, Culiacan, it's in the foothills of the Sierra Madre Mountains. It's about an hour from the coast. Sinaloa is the state, Culiacan's the capital, and Sinaloa's got a lot of frontage on the Gulf of Mexico and the Pacific Ocean. This is El Chapo's kind of home turf. It's been traditionally seen as a bit of a backwater in Mexico. So from there, build the story out. Give us more context in terms of where does El Chapo come out of? Maybe just briefly discuss Felix Guiardo and the aftermath of that era and then the system that El Chapo comes into and how he manages to get power. So that's quite a lot, but just kind of bring it together so that we can start looking at intelligence a bit more. There has been a, a, a culture of, of drug production in Sinaloa since the late 1800s, first with opium and then with marijuana. And those became sort of staple, almost like staple uh, cash crops in the mountains for many people for many years. But it was a relatively small time thing. They could get more money for that than by farming non, you know, for farming legal crops, but it wasn't this transnational operation necessarily. You know, I if you're a farmer, you would grow opium or marijuana and you would sell it to a broker who would then either sell it to someone smuggling or smuggle it themselves and make a tidy profit. But nobody was getting to be billionaires at that time. 
And in the 1960s, uh, there's a tremendous amount of the, a surge in demand due to sort of the, the hippie boom in, in the United States. Everyone wanted weed and they were getting it from, many of them were getting it from Sinaloa. And in the early 1970s, the main pipeline for heroin from Europe to the United States, known as the French Connection, was shut down uh, by you know, Turkish, French, and U.S. police. And people still needed heroin. Dealers still needed to sell it, and users still needed to do it. And the demand shifted to Sinaloa. So these two events, or these two sort of historical trends happen right when El Chapo is getting involved in the drug trade. You know, he, he's a, a young man, a teenager, a young man, and suddenly the drug trade in Sinaloa is getting turbocharged. And fast forward to the 1980s, then comes sort of the advent of cocaine, right? The Colombian producers, you know, the the Pablo Escobar's, the, the, the Cali cartel, they were initially moving coke through the Caribbean by plane, by boat, by submarine. And the Coast Guard and the DEA were cracking down really heavily on that in the early 1980s. And they needed a new way to get cocaine to the United States. And they started working with existing Mex Mexican smuggling networks that had relationships with authorities in Mexico. They knew where to cross the drugs. And cocaine is just, you make so much more money smuggling that. It's smaller. It doesn't smell as much as marijuana. It's it's just the, more the, compact. The, exactly. The profit margins are astronomical. And that move to cocaine by Mexican traffickers, most notably, as you mentioned, Felix Gallardo, really just completely changed the game in Mexico. But you can't look at that without looking at the relationship with the state. Right. So in, in Mexico, the, the, the drug trade really developed alongside and from within the post-revolutionary state-building project of the Mexican government. Especially in, in Sinaloa, the, there's been some really great scholarship, particularly by my friend and colleague, Benjamin Smith, uh, who wrote this book called The Dope. He has written about how the, there was a lot of turmoil in Sinaloa in the 1940s over land reform. And essentially the way that it stabilized was the government sanctioned certain drug traffickers to basically be the, you know, so the official drug traffickers. And these were, these were cops, these were judges, these were powerful people there who they, by providing in inflated wages to peasants growing illegal crops, they were able to stave off a certain amount of, of agitation from, from poor segments of society. And they were able to give jobs to the gunmen who had five years ago been murdering leftists. And so it, it created this sort of this stability that Mexico City relied on, sort of far-flung rural areas. And so there was this, this great amount of collusion. The drug trade was essentially run as a state a state-run protection racket. Pay the cops, and the cops let you work. And in the nineteen, in the late nineteen seventies and early eighties, that that those protection racket rackets shifted from more localized control to more federal control. So the the federal police, and particularly a secret police agency known as the uh, Federal Security Directorate or the DFS, really took over 
the game. And the reason why that's really significant in the 1980s is that the DFS was essentially that was the closest ally of the CIA in Mexico. They did really dirty work in the 70s, killing leftists, killing uh, guerrillas in, in certain areas in Mexico. And then they pretty much shifted into becoming full-time criminals, but they continued to provide information to the CIA because Mexico at this time was, it's been called sort of a Casablanca of the Cold War. There was a, a major Soviet embassy in Mexico City. There was, I think there was a Cuban embassy in, in Mexico City. And me, the Mexican government was not entirely aligned. It, it had some, to different, to different degrees over the years, it had some sort of internationalist pretensions. It had some sort of, it had certain connections to, if not explicitly communist or left-wing movements abroad it did see itself as i guess you would put it sort of non-aligned right and so the u.s the u.s felt like they had in the dfs they had an ally who were fiercely right-wing fiercely anti-communist and they were willing to look the other way about the fact that they were also full-time criminals there there was in the early 1980s the head of the dfs this guy named miguel nazaro was arrested um or yeah, he was arrested in San Diego for running a car smuggling network. His men were stealing cars in San Diego and tra- and moving them over the border into Mexico. And he was arrested. And basically, the the State Department put so much pressure on the DOJ that the that they had to drop the charges. You know, they they were like, this guy is too important to our interests in Mexico. And so, for drug traffickers like Felix Gallardo having the the DFS on your side was really important because even if the CIA is not directly financing your operations, if they, if, if, if they're backing the people who protect you, you're kind of untouchable. So that all broke down in 1985 when a number of high ranking members of what we now call referred to as the Guadalajara cartel, were implicated in the kidnapping and torture and murder of a DEA agent named uh, Enrique Kiki Camarena, who is very well known. You know, he was the star of the the first season of of Narcos Mexico, and he's seen as sort of this 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 foundational martyr of the DEA. You know, you mentioned the CIA there in the book. You set up the trade off. It's the war on drugs or the Cold War, and just, I know for a fact that some of our listeners will be saying, well, what what did you expect us to do? Um, you know, it's a Cold War. We're in this global struggle against a totalitarian system where every country is up for play and we had to make some uncomfortable choices. And does it help us in the long term? Yes. Doesn't look good in the newspapers? No. So I just wondered if you had thought about that. I, I've thought about that a great deal. I guess I would reject I would reject pretty much out of hand the fact that what the CIA was doing in in Central America was for the greater good in any in any way. I think that the the CIA was categorically on the wrong side of history in that era. They were backing death squads in El Salvador. They were backing the Contras in Nicaragua and it's hard for me to if, if if that is I guess if that is in the interest of a certain side, I don't want to be on the side of, of whoever that's in the interest of. Particularly by the 80s, the 
the sort of the Cold War mission in at least in the Americas, that's sort of what I'm familiar with. It had become so blinkered and so so self-propelling. I think in general, these these operations, whether it's the drug war or the Cold War, they become so self-propelling. You know, one one of the things that I love most about John Le Carre is that you can't always tell why it matters that they get this information. They just have to get this information. Or they have to run this op. It becomes a machine that runs itself. Exactly. Exactly. And so I, I think that I think that yes, by the logic of the Cold War, of course, national and international interests in Mexico outweigh the goals of the DEA. But but I also think that the goals of the DEA are patently absurd. I think that the drug war is a hopeless a hopeless project based on some on on an idea that 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 will never happen. You know, you're never going to get rid of drugs. Help us understand that almost passing of the baton from the Colombian cartels to the Mexican ones. And I know that it's not a an intentional here you go Mexican cartels, but. But there's something going on there, right? So we go from the age of Escobar to the age of El Chapo. Help, help us understand that shift um, from Colombia over to Mexico. For a long time, the Colombians were moving cocaine to the U.S. and selling it in the U.S. And when they were forced to start moving cocaine through Mexico, for a long time, the Mexicans, El Chapo included, were essentially couriers. You know, they were essentially very large-scale couriers of drugs. And they were moving it to the U.S. and then handing it off. And at a certain point, uh, people like to pinpoint it as Felix Gallardo was responsible for, oh, pay us in cocaine instead of money, and then we'll start being wholesalers, whatever. I don't know if you can necessarily pinpoint who exactly started that trend, but I think what happened was just that the Colombians became so dependent on the Mexican traffickers to move their cocaine that the power changed. The, the, the balance of power changed and the Mexicans realized they can't do it without us. They work for us now. And I think that in many ways, the Colombian traffickers were, were willing to take that demotion because they saw what happened when you had too much power. They saw what happened to Pablo Escobar. They saw what happened to the leaders of the of the Cali cartel who were arrested and extradited to the United States. So at the same time that that the Mexicans start gaining more power and more notoriety, you see this shift in Colombia toward what we now refer to as sort of the invisibles. Traffickers in, in, in Colombia learned to blend in more. Often they learned to blend in more by associating with paramilitary units that had the backing of the U.S. Um, and so it, it, I think it was a, a fairly gradual process, but by the early 90s, the Mexicans had so much control over that route that it, it, you know, essentially the Colombians were just providing cocaine. And I think that many people in Colombia were fine with that because they were still making hell of money, you know? I think the, I think that blending in is not something that many people would accuse uh, Pablo Escobar of. <laughs> no. no, but 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 his the people who came after him learned learned a lesson from it. You know, 
you know, to go through the various twists and turns of the various cartels inside Mexico, that could be like a 20-part documentary. So let's let's just kind of fast forward to El Chapo, so the Sinaloa cartel, and then help us understand how various parts of the Mexican state get co-opted or involved. And I know that they're they're pushing sometimes as as much as they're pulling, but help us understand that relationship between the Sinaloa cartel and the powers that be. And then from there, maybe we can go on to discuss uh, special forces and intelligence agencies and and their role in it, because I think Los Zetas is is an interesting example. Well, like I said, the Mexican government was controlled by the Party of Institutional Revolution for 70 years from PRI. the PRI from 1930 to 2000. And the PRI was an incredibly corrupt regime that ruled through patronage and brute force when necessary. But they had a really keen understanding of how to control areas of the country that they didn't necessarily have much of a presence in, you know, in, 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 in the area where El Chapo grew up, the state has a very minimal presence. And so in order to maintain stability, to keep violence at a minimum, to prevent land reform agitation from, from peasant groups, there was a lot of sort of carrot and stick. There was a lot of, like I mentioned, as as Benjamin Smith has pointed out, the the that the drug trade in Sinaloa functioned as sort of a, a a pillar of stability for for the PRI, and because it was still an illegal business, thanks to prohibition, that was an extra tool that they had in controlling the drug traffickers that they worked with, because at any moment they could decide, okay, you're out, you're gone, and and they did that. They killed. Uh, they killed Draviles. Um, they arrested Don Neto Fonseca and Rafael Caro Quintero in, in Guadalajara. They eventually arrested Felix Gallardo. Essentially, whenever a drug trafficker gained too much power or recognition or attention from the United States, the Mexican government could get rid of them and pay some, you know, work with someone else who had less notoriety. And so I think that El Chapo and other drug traffickers of his generation, people who were relatively small fish in the in the early and mid-1980s, rose to prominence in the late 1980s as sort of the successors, the new people with official government connections who were able to work a little bit more quietly. But as the PRI's control of Mexico started to break down, their control of the drug trade began to break down. And these negotiations, these pacts that traffickers had with authorities started to be renegotiated. And it, the, 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 the lines of communication became less clear. And as that generated more competition, it generated more violence because traffickers who previously could have, you know, there, there, there didn't used to be these sort of privatized armies in, in Mexican drug trafficking. That, that's a, a relatively new phenomenon um, because for many, many years, if I'm a drug trafficker and I want to get rid of someone, I'm just going to give, I'm just going to have a military unit or a corrupt police unit, get rid of them. And if I'm lucky, then they can confiscate the drugs and give them back to me. And then I can traffic those drugs and I get rid of my enemy. And so I didn't need to have, you know, I would have bodyguards, but I didn't need to have these essentially paramilitary units controlling territory for me. Because the territory was controlled 
by the state and the state allowed me to to move drugs through that area and nobody else unless they pay the tax to me and so in the 90s as that system starts to break down trafficking networks started to recruit soldiers ex-soldiers current soldiers and the the the, the best example of that of course is los Cetas. Los Cetas started as started from a, a core group of former special forces soldiers from this uh, this unit known as the GAFE, G-A-F-E, which was U.S. trained. Uh, a lot of them cut their teeth actually in Chiapas uh, during the Zapatista rebellion, very straightforward counterinsurgency. And then they defected to the Gulf cartel as sort of the, the privatized security of the leader of the Gulf cartel. And once Los Cetas formed, pretty much every other trafficking network realized that they started to, they would have to also recruit ex, ex special forces soldiers. So El Chapo started, when El Chapo escaped from prison in 2001, he started to build up his, his security arm. He was recruiting soldiers and ex cops and people with military training who could compete with a, a group like Los Cetas. And it, it created this sort of paramilitary arms race in the drug trade. And as a result, the level of violence and the, level, the the need for more overt territorial control increased. And it really spun out of control. So when we know that the special forces, you mentioned the Marines and Los Zetas, help us understand just really briefly, who are the major uh, Mexican intelligence agencies that are involved in all of this? And to what extent are they co-opted and brought into this? What To what extent are they on the payroll of people like El Chapo and so forth? I think that there's, there's a certain level of, of unknowability. We see prominent examples of that. I think it's an issue of you don't have to co-opt the entire state apparatus to get the results that you, that you need. If I'm a drug trafficker, I need to be able to traffic drugs. And I have a number of ways of either directly controlling various military units. Maybe I'm paying one high-ranking official for information. Maybe I'm paying another to just sort of gum up the works. You know, I, I think that even if a, a big chunk of the military is honest, if, if a drug trafficker is moving enough money around at higher levels, it creates a situation where there's no political will to capture someone. Even if there's people who are who are interested in truly fighting the drug trade and truly capturing people like El Chapo, there's an issue of political will. Then you also have El Chapo had a number of people over the years, very high-ranking police officials who were essentially in his pocket. You know, right now um, there's this guy Gennaro Garcia Luna who was essentially the in the U.S., he would have been like the head of the FBI. He was the architect of the anti-drug policy in Mexico in much of the, the 2000s. And he, according to U.S. prosecutors, was taking massive bribes from El Chapo the entire time. And so if you can get someone that high up, he is able to influence the operations below him in a way that just make it so that his guy is never going to get caught. And so, again, I mean, the, the, so much of this is shrouded in secrecy and innuendo and rumor. And it's, it's 
really difficult to parse those and and honestly it's 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 pretty maddening i feel sometimes like i've i've lost my mind a little bit reporting on this on this stuff because i just it it makes you paranoid and it makes you it makes you there's things that you know to be true that you can't report because you don't have hard evidence and i think that for that reason you know a lot of there's a great amount of distrust in mexico of, of sort of the official narrative and there's a there's a great amount of sort of common sense understanding that i can't necessarily report I, I get it and you're you're preaching to the converted especially for this podcast you know we we spend a lot of time looking at things that are very difficult to apprehend are there any other spy or intelligence gadgetry or tech the cartels have appropriated because you've mentioned the militarization and special ops and and they're taking on some of that training and some of those ways of doing business so are they also like using drones um hackers um cyber criminals um help, help us understand how the cartels have adapted to like where we are now in recent years, you have cert- you have certainly seen the increased use of drones. Um, in right now, there's a there's a lot of fighting in the state of Michoacan and the neighboring state of Jalisco between different paramilitary groups, and they've started to use sort of uh, like suicide drones, essentially strapping explosives to them and then driving them into a, an enemy position. It's become incredibly militarized. We learned a lot about El Chapo's use of, of of spyware and actually how that backfired on him. Because another thing that I, you know, with, with Christian, when El Chapo stopped using the uh, the messaging systems, he was still using the spyware. And the spyware sometimes picked up his communications, right? If he was texting someone uh, and that person was using an infected device and that information was going to a server that Christian controlled, the FBI then had El Chapo's you know, part of that communication. You know, there, there's also been some really good reporting. Um, Vice has done some really good reporting on the use of sort of next generation encrypted devices. Um, I'm blanking on the on the name, but there's there's there was this company I think based in in Canada that was selling encrypted phones to drug traffickers that they were using to communicate because this requires a lot of communication and. If you can't communicate in real time, you're at a huge disadvantage. And so there's this balance of, you know, it, it, we know it's not smart to talk on phones, but we need to do it. So we need to find a way to do it. And so I think that they're always, you know, they're always they're always on the lookout for the newest technology and the newest ways of, of doing it. And it continues to help them until it doesn't. In Europe, we just saw this massive breach of, I think it was called EncroChat, this encrypted chat network used by drug traffickers in Europe that the police agencies got access to and they're just making arrest after arrest after arrest. And so it, it it's this new this new frontier of this constant this rapidly changing technology that helps drug traffickers until it brings them down. And I think that they're willing to take that, you know, the being involved in the drug trade is always a bit of a okay, you're successful until you're not. And so I think that they're willing to make that sort of bargain of we we need this rapid communication, even if it might come back on us mm-hmm. at some point okay congratulations again thank you so much for having me on it's been really fun to uh, to talk about the the sort of spooky side of this thanks for listening to this episode of spycast 
Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTL Spycast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at Spy Historian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The Spycast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show.